The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. I was also asked recently, how fast are you going through Romans chapter 4? And I did not want to answer that question. Uh, I said as fast as we need to. Um, And today we're going to study a word. Just one word. And it's an important word. Romans chapter 4. We finished chapter 3. We've summarized chapter 3. And now we're into the fourth chapter of Romans. Which is entirely made up of an illustration. It's a man who illustrates everything that's been taught throughout the first three chapters. A little context, the Jews have been addressed and in the, in the target, in the bullseye of what Paul's been addressing, that God justifies the sinner by faith. That's the expressed means. It's not anything that we can do. We believe what God has done. But that obviously raises a question in the mind of a Jew. Well, if that's true, then why did God give us the law and all these regulations? Why did he give us so many things to know that we have to do? In fact, he gave us circumcision. In fact, he gave us Judaism. In fact, he gave us Abraham. So before they can ask that question about their own ancestry, after describing justification by grace through faith and faith alone in chapter 3, Paul then begins chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. We need to go no further today than the simple word Abraham. We're going to meet Abraham throughout the rest of this book, throughout the rest of our studies in the New Testament. Certainly anywhere you you go in the Old Testament, the reference point and kind of the centerpiece as, a, as an orientation piece theologically is the person of Abraham. In Genesis 1 and 2, Moses records the narrative of God creating the world. Now, we were just speaking in our members class about that. Uh, well, I was talking to someone about this. And I believe that God created the world probably closer to 6,000 years ago. Maybe as much as 8. Some say 10 or 12. But we have a very young earth And we take Genesis 1 and 2 very literally here at Mission Road. Moses tells us that what God had made, he looked at it, he saw, he backed up, he evaluated, he said, this is very good. But Genesis 3 follows Genesis 2. We call that the fall of man. Man's step into the great decline, Adam's choice that then translated into the transmission of sin and sinfulness and a sinful nature all the way down to every human, including you and me. Adam and Eve plunged the human race by their sin into an abyss of sin from which God was utterly unreachable. Heaven was entirely unattainable. 
and sin was totally inescapable. Then from Genesis 3 through 11, mankind's predisposition and predilection toward sin and for sinning percolates and boils over, drawing God's judgment in a worldwide flood. And even immediately after that flood, man's sinfulness is expressed again in Noah's own family. Now, to understand where we land in Genesis 12, you have to actually remember what God said in Genesis 1, verse 15. Verse, chapter 3, verse 15. He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to Satan, the serpent, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Theologians call this the proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. The promise that one day there will be a seed. It's nebulous, it's foggy, it's not as descript here as it will become throughout the folding of Revela- unfolding of Revelation in Scripture, but this is the promise that someday a woman would have a son who would crush the great enemy. It's a promise of not only the Messiah... It's a promise not only of God's plan. Did you notice? It's the promise of incarnation. It's from a woman's seed. We firmly believe, we hold very precious the fact that Jesus is entirely God, but we also hold in equal conviction that he is entirely a man. God promises a seed that would crush the enemy. And every generation in those early years... I think every woman who knew that promise looked at her baby and said, is this the promised seed? That promise moves from black and white and hope to color and reality in Genesis chapter 12. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 12. Since we're going to be studying Abraham over this next chapter, what we're going to do today is just pull the car over and take a strong, hard look at Abraham. We have to understand who he is, God's interaction with him, what the Abrahamic covenant is and was, and how Abraham's faith serves as a perfect and living and enduring illustration for justification by faith for every believer, even after the resurrection of Jesus. But Genesis 12 um, is is where we find the, the, the nexus point of Abraham's faith. We meet a man named Abram. He would become Abraham, and we're going to review his prominence for the Jews and the whole of Scripture this morning. What I want us to discover together is two ways Abraham serves as a biblical reference point. It's really critical. Two ways that Abraham serves, you and me, in our biblical interpretation, in our understanding of Scripture, two ways that Abraham serves as a biblical reference point. There are a few critical and key reference points in the unfolding of Scripture. We know that Moses and the giving of law is one of them. We certainly know that the coming of Christ was the epic moment in history. But moving back, what the Jews looked back at at in in the uh, uh, marching out of God's providence was what God did with, to, for, and through Abraham. In fact, the entire Jewish race was known as and is still known as sons of Abraham. Well, let's look at Abraham because we need to know who he is and understand what he believed and what God did in his life before we even jump into Romans chapter 4. 
first reference point biblically is that Abraham serves as a reference point for the Jewish race. We have to understand that. Abraham serves as the reference point of the Jewish faith. A little background. Abram was uh, his name originally. He was the son of Terah, a descendant of Shem, one of Noah's three sons. He spent his childhood in Ur of the Chaldees, which was the prominent city in Sumeria. His name Abram meant father is exalted, but it was changed later in chapter 17 to Abraham, meaning father of a multitude. We'll get there in a moment. Abram's father, Terah, moved from uh, uh, Ur of the Chaldees down to Haran in chapter 11, verse 31. You can just look across the page. Terah took his son, Abraham, took Abram, his son, rather, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, and his son, his son Abram's wife. And they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. Significant point in the providence of God. God moves this family from up on the north part of the, what we call the Fertile Crescent travel byway from Babylonia over into Palestine in the Canaan area. He moves his family from the north down into what we know today as Israel, the land of Canaan. He migrates down, and then we find him in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth, from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you just south of Haran. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now imagine you heard that from God for the first time. Also imagine that you didn't have any children at this time. So Abram went forth uh, as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and his Lot, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came into the land of Canaan. What an important little sentence that is. Thus they came into Israel, into the land of Canaan, as we'll discover. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, the oak of Moreh, now, the Canaanite was there, in the, there uh, then in the land. That's a, that's a significant footnote that will play its way out in the entire rest of the Old Testament. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Are you an underliner in your Bible? This is a massive, epic promise in the scheme of God. To your descendants, I'm going to make a real estate deal. I'm going to give to all of your descendants this real estate, this land. So Abraham was an altar there because the Lord had appeared to him. 
In chapter 13, we know about Abram and Lot. They're both there. Abram is such a godly man. He says, look, do you want that area or that area? This area was, by the way, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Las Vegas, New York, Los Angeles, London, every major city and all of its sin of the ancient Near East in this area. You want that area or you want, you want to be a farmer? You want to go out to the pasture? What did Lot choose? Sodom. Abraham then goes to the land. Just for a second, look at chapter 13, verse 13. A little footnote. The men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. After they separate, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. Got your pen out still? For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants until Jesus comes. Wait a minute. No. To you and your descendants until the amillennialism starts. No. To you and your descendants, how long? Now, my question, you're all good students. What does the word forever mean? Forever. One of the main divides in biblical theology is over this word. Whether or not that literally means forever to Abraham's descendants and whether there will be a future national saved Israel who affirms Jesus as their Messiah back in that land as the eternal promise kept from God. I firmly believe that's exactly what's going to happen. He made that promise to him for ever. Turn over to chapter 16 for a moment. Abraham, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make your seed inhabit the world, and I'm going to make your seed the Messiah and the King of the earth. I'm going to bless everybody through your and Sarah's offspring. Sounds good, but there's a problem. Abraham's bumping up against 100 years old, and guess what? No baby. So in chapter 16, you have his faithful counseling wife, Sarah, who comes and says, tell you what, God is not really doing the fulfilling of the promise here, so I want to help you out. I want you to take the handmaiden, Hagar, go into her, and hopefully you can have progeny with her, and then God will fill his promise through her. Well, first of all, that's not who the promise was made to, was it? Made to Abraham and his wife, Sarah. You know what happens? They have little son, Ishmael. Uh, that didn't go so well with Sarah's um, um, view of Abraham and view of Ishmael and view of Hagar, the handmaiden. That occupies chapter 16. Still, very interesting. God says, I'm going to bless this offspring and a great nation will rise out of that. That's the Arab nation. And it certainly has. But then you come to chapter 17. Now, this is very interesting. Um, Bob actually mentioned this when he was praying. And I, I don't know if you've ever, under, ever understood this. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and later he was circumcised. 
two entirely different things going on. Go back to chapter 15 for a moment. Let's pick up that promise because we'll have to wrestle with it in chapter 17. Where the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield. Your reward will be very great. Abram said, Oh, Lord, what will you give me? I'm childless. Heir of my house is Eliezer and Damascus. Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, no one born in my house is an heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This will not be your heir. In other words, what you try to figure out as me fulfilling my promise is not going to work. This man will not be your heir. The one will come forth from your own body. He will be your heir. And he took him outside, looked to the heavens, count the stars. If you're able to count them, he said, so shall your descendants be. And then, verse 6, then he believed in the Lord and God credited, imputed, counted, reckoned it to him as righteousness. He's declared righteous in 15, and he's circumcised in 17. That seems to be a, a critical feature that the Jews have misunderstood for millennia. In fact, that's exactly the feature that Paul is going to address in Romans 4. Don't, don't think circumcised uh, surgery saves you. Don't think the circumcision uh, and, and this surgical procedure that you go through makes you right and, and pleasing to God. Abraham was pleasing to God. Before he was circumcised, because God counted his faith as righteousness. So, verse seven, chapter 17, verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Obedience always follows justification. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold my promise. My covenant is with you. And you will be the father of great multitude of nations. Now it's moved from many people to many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, by, but your name will be called Abraham. That's significant. Abraham means the father of multitudes. I have made you father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants and after you throughout their generations for how long is that covenant? An everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your sons, your descendants after you. Please, I am belaboring the point on purpose. Verse 8, don't miss verse 8. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, the land of Canaan, all the land of Canaan, for what kind of possession? What kind? Everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And he's circumcised, he and his whole household. God promised to Abraham and to the Jews that real estate of Jerusalem and its surrounding country of Israel as an everlasting possession and covenant. You say, well, what, what happened between A.D. 70 and 1947? Remember what Jesus said about that? He walked by a fig tree 
and he curses it. The next day they come by and the fig tree, which was supernatural, had entirely withered. It was dead. And he says, such is the nation of Israel. Why? Because they had rejected their Messiah. Well, what about this promise? He will fulfill this promise in a future thousand-year reign when he will grant them their possession as a saved nation who recognizes him, Jesus is the Messiah, and we get to rule and reign with him on this planet, unmatched blessing. In chapter 18, three men show up. Chapter 18 is a prelude to what happens in chapter 19. These three men show up and they promise one of them was the Lord, probably the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity, Christ. Abraham calls him Lord. And they promise the birth of Isaac. You know the story. Sarah overhears that. How'd that work out for her? She thought it was a comedy club. She laughed. Really? Ha, I'm too old for children. And the Lord says, actually, I'll be back next year and you'll have a child. Supernatural. God made sure that they were beyond childbearing years so that the child of promise would be a supernatural blessing. Obvious. Then in chapter 19, Sodom falls. Isaac is born, sure enough, in chapter 21, when Abraham was, a, Abraham was 100 years old. 100 years old. And then comes Genesis 22. Genesis 22 is the great test of the Old Testament. Now, we're only going to hint at the, the features and the details in Genesis 22 because that's going to come into full fruition in Romans chapter 4 later in the chapter. How did God know that Abraham had believed in him and put his entire trust and faith in him? How can he test that? Well, let's ask some questions. What was most important to Abraham? His son Isaac. What was most important to Sarah, who had her name changed, by the way, laughter when she laughed at the Lord, was Isaac as well. How would God test this faith? It came about, chapter 22, verse 1, after these things that God tested Abraham. Here's what's very interesting. The text and the narrator, M Moses tells us that God was testing Abraham. Abraham did not know God was testing him. He just knows the command. Abraham, he said to him, and he said, here I am. He said, take now your son. And this is a stack of descriptions that is unmistakable. He could have said, take Isaac. Listen to what he says. Take now your son, your only son, your son, your only son, the one whom you love, specifically named Isaac. Is that not incredible? I mean, there was no mistaking that God knew exactly what he wanted and exactly what he was commanded. Go to the land of Moriah and offer him there. 
as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. the son of the promise. How would God fulfill his promise about this child if he were to be killed by his father? The white space between chapter 2 and, excuse me, verse 2 and 3 I really want to talk to Abraham in heaven one day and say, just tell me about those thoughts and those decisions. Because verse 3 just simply says, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son. And he split wood for the burnt offering. He didn't know if there was going to be wood where he was going. He made sure he would have no, no excuses and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, on the third day, can you believe this? Three days to chicken out. Three days to reconsider. Three days, three days to wonder, what will I tell Sarah when I come back? On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there. We will worship, serve God, sacrifice, and we will return to you. Now, if you're a first-time reader in this narrative, your first thought is, he's not going to do it. They'll go make a sacrifice, and Abraham said, we're going to come. Or you think Abraham's a liar. He wants to cover his tracks. He's about to go be a murderer, and so he wants to make sure that the men are not trying to prevent him. Abraham may have believed something entirely different than that, though. So he took the wood, the burnt offering, laid it on Isaac, his son. That tells us Isaac was old enough to carry a substantial pile of wood. This was not a little boy. This was no doubt a young teen. And he took in his hand the, not, the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Now, if you know the geography of Israel, you know what's happening. They probably came from that mountain, the, the mountain pass in the south. They would come over. And to come into the Jerusalem area, is like, it's like the cone of a volcano. It's surrounded entirely by ridges. And coming out of the bottom of that valley is a mount on which the city of Jerusalem sits. On which there was a peak... And that's where Abram was called by God to go and sacrifice Isaac. That would one day be the place of the temple, by the way. Isaac's not stupid. Isaac spoke to Abram, Abraham's father and said, my, my father, he said, here I am, son. He said, behold the fire and the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He'd seen, seen offerings over and over and over. Dad, where's, uh, we're going to kill an, an animal here. It's going to be an offering. We're going to have a great feast later. That's what followed uh, these sacrifices. This was a good day. The fire, the knife, where's, where's the animal, Dad? Abraham said, God will provide 
It's reflexive in the Hebrew. Even himself, for himself, the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. They came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar, arranged the wood, and tied his boy up, bound his son. Isaac laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham raised or stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. Don't stretch out your hand against the lad. And do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your greatest possession, your son. He stacks it up again, your only son from me. Remember, that was a sacrifice to God. He passed the test. What was the test? Can I give you a sneak preview? We're going to find out if you want to read ahead in the end of Romans 4, that the test was, did he believe in resurrection? That was the test. This was not, and somehow God communicated that to him in a mystery, and somehow that didn't get communicated in the Old Testament, but somehow God reveals that in Romans 4 and in Hebrews 11. That Abraham had every confidence and his faith was that he would indeed kill his son and God would raise him from the dead. That was the test. He believed God. God reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. God said, I want to make sure that that's the case by your obedience. And he proved himself faithful. Because of this data... Abraham becomes the central figure not only for the Jews as their father, but also the central figure in Romans chapter 4. We'll also meet him again in Romans chapter 9 and chapter 11, by the way. The Jews look back at Abraham. He is their great father. Galatians, as we'll see in a few weeks, says we also have a point of partaking as sons, Abraham, because of the gospel. It's an amazing mystery. But even more than that, Abraham becomes a point of reference for saving faith. Secondly, he's a point of reference for saving faith. By the time of Jesus, um, this affection for Abraham had taken a serious turn. The Jews had developed an idea that genealogy... And DNA was salvific, as confirmed by surgery. Say, what do you mean by that? Because we're sons and daughters of Abraham, because we're Jewish, and we have Jewish line in us, because we have Jewish blood in us, we are favored just as Abraham was. And because we have chosen to be obedient in the sign of the circumcision, surgery, the little boys, We've proven to God that we believe him. Therefore, we're saved. Therefore, we're safe from God's wrath. Therefore, we're in God's favor. Therefore, we're God's favored people. And we don't have to worry much about how we live, but we can sure condemn others on how they live. That was the error that Paul addresses in chapter 2 and 3 of Romans. Descent from Abraham 
guaranteed salvation in a Jewish mind. And can I dare say, if you talk to an Orthodox Jew today, they will tell you the same thing. Why are you going to heaven? Because I am a Jew and I give adherence to the law. I have neighbors who've told me that. Problem is, God never said you go to heaven because you're a Jew. And he never said that if you obey the law, you'll go to heaven because, as we already studied, who can obey the law enough to be perfect to go to heaven? No one, not even the best Jew, not even the Pharisees who believed that and taught that and confronted Jesus about that. Look over at Matthew chapter 3 for a moment. When you come to the New Testament, Abraham plays a significant and prominent role as well. In Matthew 3, you find the, uh, the full apex of the ministry of John the Baptist. Uh, let's pick it up in verse um, 7. When he, that's John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, oh, there's room in the water for you. You know what he said? <laughs> you snakes, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, you want to do this right? You want to, you want to play tango spiritually? You want to talk about the Bible? Then bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't just have the superstitious affection to the law. Do it. And do you suppose, not suppose, verse 9, do you not suppose, suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. Do you see John the Baptist correcting that notion that if you are a son of Abraham, you're automatically, de facto, by default saved? Don't you think you can say, Jews, Pharisees, Sadducees, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones, God is able to raise up children to Abraham. What's his point? That's just a matter of nature. You can have babies. That doesn't make them saved. Luke chapter 19. That was Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist. What did Jesus think about Abraham as a reference point? I found a very interesting dialogue happening in Luke 9, excuse me, Luke 19 where you find the, the both sides of the coin of those who are truly Abraham's children and those who were just by birth claiming an attachment to Abram, Abraham. In uh, Luke chapter 19, let's pick it up in... Um, in let's just pick it up in verse 1. Um, he entered Jericho, was passing through. This was about 13, 15 miles below Jerusalem before he climbed up down by the Dead Sea. And there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see Jesus, who Jesus was and he was unable because of the crowd for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him for he was about to pass through. Now can I just say this? I was in Israel, in Jericho. And we were touring around Jericho. And we found a sycamore tree. And our guide said, let's do a little role play. Let's have someone climb up in the sycamore tree. 
And guess who they nominated? <laughs> when Jesus came to that place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I'll give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone, more likely since I have defrauded a lot of people, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. We love that verse. Have you ever connected that which is lost to the previous verse? Who's lost? The sons of Abraham. This came from the Decapolis when he was coming south. All sorts of Gentiles were getting saved. And now he says, even a Jew can be saved. Hebrews chapter 11. Great hall of faith, the great chapter of faith. This will be territory that we'll revisit in Hebrews 11 in coming weeks. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham. Very important. Because that's the illustration Paul will grab all throughout chapter 4. By faith, Abraham. You can stop right there. Abraham believed God, had faith. God credited him with perfection and righteousness and erased his guilt because he believed God. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was going to receive for an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going. First of all, God said, go down, to this, go south toward Canaan. Okay. God said it, I'll do it. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. That is such an interesting passage. He lived as an alien in a land that was going to be given to him and his descendants forever. A foreign land dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This was going to be a bigger promise than just real estate in Israel. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she had considered him faithful who had promised. Sarah had faith. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as a good deed, as good as dead, excuse me, at that. As many descendants as the stars in heaven, now we hear the Abrahamic covenant, and as innumerable as the, innumerable as the sand which is in the seashore. All these died in faith. I love that. Don't you like that? They finished well. They didn't bail out without receiving the promises, the fulfillment of what God had said. But having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on earth. Even Abraham understood that there were eternal consequences and ramifications of that promise that the Messiah would come through his seed. Heaven was at stake. 
For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. Even we who believe in Abraham's faith believe about the faith of Abraham. We too inherit that. Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from when they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, and he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom... It was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. What's the point? Throughout the Old Testament for the Jew, who would really look for the right lesson, and throughout the New Testament from Jesus, from John the Baptist, from Paul, from James, from the writer to the Hebrews, we find that Abraham is a Reference point and an illustration for saving faith. Why? It's simple. This is all of chapter 4 in Romans. Here's the whole summary. God said, you can't save yourself. No ritual. Not not, not any church you belong to. Not an infant baptism. Nothing you can do will make you righteous enough to inherit eternal life. So I'm going to do that for you. I'm going to create the means by which I declare you righteous. Remember, there's a big difference in Protestantism and Catholicism. Protestantism sees this as exactly what it says. He counted, he credited it to Abraham as righteous. Catholicism teaches it's infused, that you become righteous, which makes us so sad that there are so many who struggle with, are they saved, are they not? And if that doesn't work out, maybe I'll get it after heaven in purgatory. After death and purgatory. We're not infused with righteousness. That's why we still sin. And once you have that idea that you have been infused with righteousness and you don't act righteous enough for your own conscience and certainly not living up to the pattern and bounds of the scripture, you live in perpetual insecurity and failure. Thinking, I'm not good enough. I haven't done enough. I haven't prayed enough. Aren't you glad that God said, no, it's what I've done in Jesus on the cross, taking his righteousness and saying, it's in your account. It's in your account. It's a great illustration of this. Imputation is not just the erasure of guilt it's because we've sinned and we've fallen short of the glory of God. We have all these offenses against God. And it's easy to think that justification is God forgiving all of our sins, which brings us to point zero, right? That's inaccurate. Not only does God forgive our sins and our guilt in Christ, a $50 billion debt we owe, not only does he forgive that, he now puts all the money in the world in your account. The righteousness, get this, the righteousness of Christ. What righteousness is that? He's God. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. No man can do that. So we go to heaven by his perfection, not our own. That's why it's good news. That's why we, if we say we have no sins, we make him a liar. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. 
And even if we die with unconfessed sins, he's died for those. So, Paul takes all that data. What he's taught in Romans 1 to 3, and what he's taught, what, what, what they knew about Abraham, and says, you got Abraham? You got him in focus? You got him? Okay. He is a perfect illustration for the fact that you can do nothing to earn God's favor except believe what God's done. And in fact, Abraham believed, and he was a pagan when he did. He was a Gentile when he believed. Paul will make that point with an exclamation point. What do you trust in? What do you put confidence in to go to heaven? Doing better, trying harder, confessing more, doing good deeds, going to church. It'll never be enough. It will never be enough. But what he has done in giving his perfect righteousness to sinners and taking our imperfection and dying for that on the cross, that's the good news. That's the gospel. Would you pray with me? We have sung from Sunday school, Lord, about Father Abraham. We understand by looking at his life more carefully that he is our father because he is the great example of salvation by grace and through faith. Help us to learn of his life and to take the lessons from Abraham's life and testing and move into Romans 4, seeing him as the proper illustration of Justification by faith and faith alone. Lord, relieve, please relieve the burdened, guilty sinner who may be here today who is wrestling with assurance, never convinced that they're right with you. First of all, convince them, Lord, that they, they're, they're right and that only Christ can make us right with you. So, Open the flood doors of salvation for some. And for those who know you, for those of us who believe the gospel, oh, Father, help us to revel and joy in the fact that you save by faith and not works. By faith alone, but not faith that stays alone, but in sanctification chooses to obey. What a privilege we have when we don't and when we fail, that we can confess our sins to you and you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In that we glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.